Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Rick. It's uh, season six, episode six. Uh, For those of you who are just listening to this podcast for the first time, I'm an author. I'm executive director of an organization called Vibrant Faith. For three decades, I was executive editor with Group Publishing, where I oversaw all of what we did in the youth ministry area. And then I wrote a book called Jesus-Centered Youth Ministry that came out of my own personal transformation in my ministry leadership role over the years, where I moved from the tip, what I would call the tips and techniques of ministry, the try harder to get better strategies that most people in ministry leadership have heard their whole lives. I moved in a kind of a radical way away from that to an approach that really focused everything that you do in ministry on helping people develop a deeper attachment to Jesus himself, to encounter the wonder and awe of the heart of Jesus as your primary uh, strategy. (laughs) And uh, I shifted all this in midstream about 20 years ago and wrote a book called Jesus Centered Youth Ministry that was uh, trying to capture my experience in this. And then I totally rewrote that book about, I don't know, seven years ago now, six or seven years after I'd been practicing this approach for 10 years with real life adult leaders and real life teenagers. And and, uh, out of that came a string of sort of cascading things that happened that I I then uh, under great duress from my wife and others who had been asking me for years to write a book called The Jesus-Centered Life that wasn't just about ministry. It was about how, how do you live a life that is centered around Jesus? So I finally did that. And it was published, uh, I think, five or six years ago now. And then right around the same time, our ministry team there at Group um, had this crazy idea of trying to create a Bible called the Jesus-Centered Bible. And so I, I led the team on a, about an 18-month journey of creating a brand new Bible called the Jesus-Centered Bible. We weren't really a Bible publisher, but we had this dream of creating a bunch of special features we could add into the New Living Translation Bible that would help direct your attention to Jesus no matter where you were reading in the Bible. And uh, we had some crazy ideas. One of them was what we call the blue letters in the Old Testament, where my friend, Dr. Ken Castor, and I spent weeks together. (laughs) He mostly lived at my home off and on for those weeks, but we spent uh, so much time together, just pouring through the Old Testament, stopping whenever we found a place that pointed to Jesus somehow. And when we found one of those places, we highlighted that section of the Old Testament in blue and then created a little call-out box tied to that that explained the connection to Jesus. We ended up finding so many of these, we had to limit ourselves. I think there's six or 700 of them in the Jesus-Centered Bible's Old Testament. Uh, in fact, when you if you get a copy of the Jesus-Centered Bible, you'll notice immediately that the Old Testament has this blue tinge to it on the edges of the pages because 
there are so many of these call outs to Jesus. So that's just one of the eight or nine features that we added into this Bible that are unique to this Bible. So then we launched that and uh, surprisingly, it became a massive, massively popular. Uh, it still is to this day. Um, I think we're closing in on a couple hundred thousand people who've, who have bought that Jesus-centered Bible now. And, and I've had so many like amazing stories that I've heard back from people about how this Bible has drawn them into greater intimacy with Jesus. So, so I'll put a link uh, to the Jesus-centered Bible on our podcast page for this episode. Again, if you want to check out the links from anything we're about to talk about, including the Jesus-centered Bible, just go to paying and on there, you'll find links to this episode, which is season six, episode six, and you can check it out there, or you can go to group.com and just search for Jesus-centered Bible or the Jesus-centered life or uh, the uh, Jesus or Jesus-centered youth ministry or the guide for volunteers. Uh, and we have a whole, actually all of this exploded and steamrolled into a whole line of Jesus-centered resources. You'll find a bunch of them there on group.com. Um, and of course, if you if you're looking for that Bible, you can go directly to Amazon or anywhere you, any Christian bookstore that, that you like to go to. Um, but that's, that's some of my story. It's, it's uh, 15 or 20 years ago, my life changed after having been in ministry in lots of different roles as an editor, a resource creator, a speaker, a trainer, even some pastoral roles that I, that I filled. Um, halfway through that journey, everything changed for me. Uh, and really what changed is that though I'd been talking about Jesus my, my whole life since I was a teenager, I had never encountered his beauty um, as the primary way that I filtered the events of my life and um, decided what I would and wouldn't do and, and made decisions in my life, all of it, um, all of it had basically before that point, uh, compartmentalized Jesus away into one part of my life. And this shift was when Jesus started to invade every part of my life. So all of that, uh, uh, funneled into the, the latest project that I, that was just released in October called the Jesus center daily. It's a daily devotional that I worked on for two years. It's really the, uh, the culmination of these two decades of work um, and immersion in this way of living. And um, I'm just, uh, I, I, I go back and read it myself every day now. And it's funny, um, I'm, I can treat it as if I'm reading a devotion that someone else wrote. And um, when you do that, you can uh, grow and mature and be caught off guard even <laughs> by something that you actually wrote. And, and so I read, I read the Jesus center daily every day and just want to invite you to do the same. You can, you can check that out on Amazon or group.com as well, or you can go to my, the website that I built just for this little devotional. It's called Jesus jesuscenterdaily.com. You can, there you can get a 10 day free sampler. If you want, just click a button. You can watch my intro video if you want. Um, amateurish as it is. And uh, you can even order it from there if you want to. But, and if you already have a copy, um, please do uh, post your review on Amazon that uh, I'm so grateful for all of you who have already done that. 
And some of your reviews just bring tears to my eyes. I feel like we're kindred spirits, and I'm so grateful to be on this journey with you. So today, this is episode nine in a series we started last year called Kingdom Come. Kingdom Come. It's really, we're, we're trying to get our arms around what the kingdom of God really is, and because it's, it's centrally important to the mission of Jesus. Jesus came to plant the kingdom of God on earth. And the kingdom of God is really a culture. Like all of us have a family culture we come out of. It's the things that the, the, the values that we have, the traditions that we observe, the standards that we live up to or live down to. <laughs> uh, all of us come out of a, a family culture. Well, the kingdom of God is the family culture of the Trinity. And Jesus came to plant that culture, that upending, surprising culture in the broken and messed up world that... Um, that he was incarnated into. <laughs> so this broken, messed up world came, of course, because of betrayal and sin. Everything's broken. So when you bring a pristine and perfect culture into a broken culture, of course, there's going to be tension and upending and surprise. And I've never thought of things that way before. It's because we're so far removed from what uh, the purity and beauty of a culture really can be. And that's what Jesus came to plant in our culture and in our hearts, and then to help us learn how to live in it. So today, in episode nine of this series, we're going to explore miracles. Miracles. <laughs> now, this is, the, uh, by the way, one of the central things Jesus is known for, right? It's his miracles. It's, it's these fantastical stories that seem like actually they're just stories to some people that that they're so incredible that we might as well be reading Harry Potter, right? When we think about the miracles of the, the food miracles, Jesus turning a few loaves and fishes into a feast for everyone, or the healing miracles, or the walking on water miracles, or the, you, you could go on and on. These incredible things that Jesus did, the fireworks, I guess you could call it, of Jesus, well, we can't really talk about the kingdom of God and Jesus bringing it into our culture without addressing one of the things that happens with regularity you know, when you're around him. Miracles happen when you're around Jesus. So what, what, what's their purpose in the kingdom of God? Do miracles still happen? Um, or are they just, uh, you know, like, like rolling the right dice at the craps table in Las Vegas. Is that, is that what a miracle is? You just happen to have had this convergence of chance that leads to something extraordinary. Um, or do miracles still happen? Do miracles still surround and follow Jesus? And if they do, where are they? Well, um, today I'd like to tell you the story of a miracle. It's a true story. It's a story that I'm living inside of right now. So uh, this story all started about a year and a half ago, and um, I actually write about the first part of this story in the Jesus Center Daily, this daily devotional I just told you about. One whole day is dedicated to this story. So I thought maybe the best way to enter into this story is to simply read to you the short account of, the, of this miracle that I included there in the Jesus Center Daily. It's in the April 2nd entry. So here's how it goes. In Southern California on vacation with my family, I tried 
boogie boarding for the first time. That's riding a wave on the top of a short rectangular piece of hydrodynamic foam. <laughs> you've probably seen it somewhere on TV or maybe you've actually boogie boarded yourself, but that's what it is. So, and continuing with what I wrote here, I'd never felt the power of the ocean's undercurrents like that before or the pounding of the surf. After one particularly dismembering experience, I washed up disoriented and gasping for air. I looked down at my left hand and saw that the force of the undercurrent had stripped off my wedding ring. Well, grief-stricken, I spent the next few hours combing the shore, desperate to find my lost treasure. And the next morning, early in the morning, I went down to the beach at low tide. I saw a man with a metal detector. So I went up to him and I told him my story. His eyes lit up. My loss gave John the treasure hunter a great quest. And since I've returned home, John has updated me on his search every month. Here's a few of the emails I've gotten from him. I've been back a few times with no luck. I also notified my metal detecting friends to keep an eye out for it. We may need to get some big storms to move the sand. Here's to big storms. And then another one. Still looking. Had a great low tide a couple of weeks back and really hunted hard, but no luck. And yet another one. Just letting you know, it's probably still out there. We'll keep looking when conditions improve. So John wrote me every month. <laughs> and in the devotion, I write this at the, at the close. I may never get my ring back, but I have John out there on the beach day after day, reminding me of Jesus. So that's the little account that I included in the Jesus Center Daily on April for the April 2nd entry. Um, I couldn't put in a lot of detail because after all, it's a short devotional, <laughs> but that captures the essence of what happened. But I, I can't tell you how disorienting this was to have had the ocean <laughs> steal my wedding ring and then to look and not be able to find it. And then to meet this random man out there with his metal detector. And if you've ever been to a Southern California beach, you have seen these people with metal detectors out there, especially early in the morning as they look for things buried in the sand. And I initially, I thought, well, maybe John will find this if not too much time passes. Um, but the more that time passes, of course, the more the ring could get buried or carried by currents further down the beach. And, um, but when I told my family, when I came back from the beach after meeting John and him committing to, to looking for my ring, when I told my family about this, you know, they, they were excited that I met him, but honestly, they, they didn't believe I was ever going to see my ring again. And my daughters were, you know, sort of grief stricken with me that they, they just felt for me that I had lost my wedding ring. And, and, um, for a long time, I kind of, um, I guess I, I, I kind of pragmatically held out hope. Um, and I went around without a ring on my left hand, but my parents gave me a graduation ring that I wear on my right hand, a very uh, understated um, special ring that has a, a, uh, the outline of a dove on it. 
And um, I decided to switch that from my right hand to my left hand. And I just said, I guess I'll treat this as my wedding ring now. But John continued to email me about every month, updating me on what he'd been doing and his progress. And I, I have to say that it was stunning. It was stunning what he was doing. Um, that last line of my devotion, I have John out there on the beach day after day reminding me of Jesus, was just very true. John became a living metaphor for me of someone who would not give up trying to find the thing that was lost. That inexplicably, he took on my grief and said, I'm going to keep looking as long as it takes to find this. Well, I hadn't heard from John for a couple of months, you know, and I kind of expected that, you know, how long can this guy, you know, actually keep at this? I know he loves to metal detect, but wow, to take this on and to continue to communicate with me, to own, to own my lost and found, um, continued to be an extraordinary uh, act of uh, kindness, generosity, and love to me. So uh, radio storyteller Paul Harvey used to say, now for the rest of the story. <laughs> uh, if you're a person of a certain age, you probably remember Paul Harvey saying that. Well, let's tell the rest of the story now. A week ago, out of the blue, I got a text from a person I don't know. Um, here is the text exchange, and I'm going to follow it all the way through to the end. This is the rest of the story. This message is for Rick Lawrence. John Woods gave me your info. I found a gold ring today in Carlsbad that is a nugget ring. He said it may be yours. Sounds like there is, there's a chance it could be yours. Feel free to call or text me. And then this guy, Casey, who identified himself as a metal detectorist, Casey gave me his contact information, obviously, because he had texted me. Um, he's a, a, as it turns out, I'll get back to the, the, the texting thread here in just a second, but it turns out Casey is a good friend, good friends with John, my, uh, my metaphoric Jesus out there looking for the lost so that he could find it. Um, he's a good friend of his. And somehow um, Casey, after finding this ring, uh, and describing it somewhere, maybe it was on one of their metal detectorist websites, John Woods, who had been looking for this ring for me, saw his description, contacted him, and said, hey, I think I may know whose ring that is. <laughs> and so again, one more time behind the scenes, John, the metal detector, went out of his way to try to uh, bring back what was lost to make it found. So here's, I'm going to pick up the text thread. Now this is me texting Casey back. Wow, Casey, that would be so incredible if you found my wedding ring. It's been a heartbreak. It's a gold nugget ring and the underside is smooth, no nuggets. If you post a photo, I can confirm. And then Casey wrote back, do you recall approximately where on Carlsbad Beach you lost the ring? Was it closer, close to Tamarack near the volleyball courts, near a certain hotel? Would it be, it would be super cool if it's yours. So here, 
um, Casey is just checking to make sure he's not sending a ring back to somebody who's just, you know, <laughs> trying to get a ring out of the blue. Uh, he's, he's testing me a little bit to find out if where he found it and he's not revealing where he found it yet, but he's, he's trying to uh, test to see if where he found it lines up with my story. So he's not going to send me a picture yet. So I wrote him back and I said, we're, I told him the hotel that we were staying at. And then uh, I continued, but the, but the, the strong undertow pulled it off my finger and it could have been washed down the surf or the beach. How far, I don't know. And then the next text I got from Casey was a series of four pictures of a ring. And the ring that I saw in these pictures was my ring. It was unmistakably my ring. The gold nuggets, the smooth under the smooth underside of it, the slightly bent shape of it because it's pretty soft gold. Um, it was my ring, unmistakably. I, the feeling of looking at my ring missing for a year and a half on an ocean beach in Cal, in Southern California, and the impossibility of it actually being found by anybody let alone someone who was going out pretty much every day with his metal detector searching for it. Um, and then for someone he had an acquaintance with to discover this ring and for the two of them to connect and for the word to get back to me. And then for those photos to be sitting on my phone and I'm staring at it, it was a miracle. And that's what I said back to Casey. Here's what I wrote next. That is it. Oh my gosh, it's a miracle for real. I can't thank you enough. How can I facilitate getting it mailed back to me? I can send you a postage paid mailer if you send me your address. And Casey wrote back, nice, with four exclamation marks. Yeah, send me your address and I'll get it shipped out on Monday. I'll send you the receipt once I ship it in tracking. And then you can pay me through Venmo or PayPal for, to cover the shipping. And if you want me to pay me a reward, that's appreciated. If not, no worries. And then he gave me his website and his website is called theringfinders.com. <laughs> he is one of those who have joined this site, people that actually go out looking for lost treasures with their metal detectors. I will post Casey's link to theringfinders.com on the episode page uh, because uh, you'll see in just a moment, Casey writes little blog posts about things he finds along with pictures of people who have been reunited with their treasures. And pretty soon my <laughs> there's going to be a blog post about this story up there. So uh, anyway, I will post that link on our episode page. Again, that's paying ridiculous attention to Jesus.com season six, episode six. You can look for that, that there, but it's uh, his name is Casey Davis and he's on the ringfinders.com. So so here's picking up the text thread again. Here's, here's what I said back to him. Oh my gosh, Casey, I can certainly pay you through Venmo. What's amazing is that you met John. No, no, here's this. This is Casey picking up. He's, he's writing back to me. What's amazing is that you met John, that you made an impression on him to remember your ring and that he forwarded it to me. I usually post on Craigslist in the lost and found. Glad it's going to work out. It's a very nice ring. Then I wrote back, John has been unbelievable in following up his pledge to look for my ring. 
I met him when I was searching for it, and he's had the courage and tenacity to keep searching on my behalf. So grateful to both of you. And then Casey wrote back, he's a great guy, that John. When did you lose the ring? Two years ago? Oh, and if you're okay with it, I would like to put your story on my blog. All I ask is that when you get the ring, take a picture of you holding the ring next to your smiling face. Would that be okay? And I wrote back, I lost it in the summer of 2019, so 18 months ago. And of course, I'd love to take a photo of the reuniting and send it. By the way, I'm a Christian author, and I wrote about this story in one of the daily devotionals in my new release called The Jesus Center Daily. I'll send a photo of that page so you can see the story told there. So I took a picture of that page of the devotional and sent it to Casey. And his last note to me was, cool, I'd love to read it. And, um, and then he, he got the picture of the page and he, and he said, oh, wow, how cool. Now you can have part two. <laughs> now there's one last part, last little chapter of this miracle. I reached out to John, my Jesus metaphor guy, and told him what had happened and copied the whole thread between Casey and I, including the pictures so that he could see it all. And John, here's, here's my initial note to John and then his note back to me. John, miracle of miracles, your friend Casey discovered my long lost wedding ring. And it's really only possible because of your generous and persistent and dogged determination to keep looking and to keep your radar up. I can't thank you enough for your kindness. I've copied below the text exchanges between Casey and me, along with the pictures he sent. The text thread continues after the photos. And then I got a note back from John that day. Rick, wow. It's been a long time since I've smiled so warmly on the inside. Glad that you finally will get the ring returned. Casey's a good friend and a metal detecting companion. I'm so happy this story has a happy ending. Best of luck and stay healthy. John. So yes, <laughs> this is a miracle story. You know, it reminds me of that whole pluck a coin from the fish's, fish's mouth story. You know, when Jesus paid his temple tax by having Peter go down to the beach and throw out a line and <laughs> catch a fish and take the coin out of the fish's mouth. That's like uh, accessing the fish ATM. <laughs> This, this whole story reminded me a little bit of that, like the impossibility of it, like the, wow, this never should have happened. Miracles are startling because they're supposed to be impossible, right? That's what makes them miracles, that this shouldn't be able to have happened. And of course, my, my story certainly qualifies as that. My whole family believed this to be impossible, especially a year and a half from when this happened. But you know, the, here's the truth. Whatever else I did in this situation, I did believe. I, I believed not so much because of my certainty that it was possible to find this ring. I mean, like somebody's got to find it. I, I never thought that. I thought that it was as impossible as it sounds. And yet I did believe. And I think the foundation of this miracle is not really in the physical impossibility of what happened. But the foundation of the miracle is what happened during my chance encounter with John on that beach. You know, the reason I invested my belief that a miracle could happen in this um, lost wedding ring saga of my life, the reason I invested my belief in that miracle is because of John's reaction to my need. 
his persistent and passionate and determined reaction to find what I had lost. In my devotion entry that frames this story, um, I focus on Luke chapter 15, one through seven. Um, it's really a miracle story that we don't typically read as a miracle story. We know all the miracle stories, the big fireworky kinds of stories that I mentioned before. We don't typically read this as a miracle story, but I think in light of my own miracle and what I've just said is the real miracle behind my story, um, I think maybe you'll see this, this, this parable, this story in a different light. So let's read Luke 15, one through seven. If you're not driving right now and you want to crack open your Jesus-centered Bible to Luke 15, go right ahead. Um, just flip on over to there. Otherwise, uh, here we go. Luke 15, one through seven. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he'll call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. In the same way, there's more joy in heaven over one lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. So Jesus tells this story in response to the reaction of the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law as they observed how often he hung out with quote-unquote notorious sinners. Now, these are people that often, often came to listen to Jesus teach. They showed up all the time, these tax collectors and sinners. They were magnetized by what Jesus had to say. And this was not something that happened with the Pharisees and teachers of the religious law. They did not have tax collectors and notorious sinners showing up to listen to them talk about um, the 5,000 new ways they were supposed to try hard to get better in order to make themselves good enough to be uh, considered in the good graces of God. They did not show up for that kind of stuff because they knew that they were empty and needy and desperately uh, dependent on the inside. They knew they had obvious evidence from the way people treated them that they didn't have enough goodness in them to qualify under the Pharisees' stringent guidelines for what goodness meant. And those Pharisees and teachers of religious law were not only shocked by the number of tax collectors and sinners who came to listen to Jesus, and, and as often as they did, they were deeply offended that Jesus even ate with these people. Like he invited them into friendship with him. It wasn't just that, you know, well, I can't control who comes to listen to me. Jesus himself extended himself to them and ate with them. And, and in that culture, that's an act of relational connection even relational intimacy. They were, they just couldn't get their minds around why Jesus would be doing this. Doesn't he know what rotten people these are? 
And out of that, Jesus tells them the story of the hundred sheep with one of them getting lost. Let's just go back over the questions Jesus raises in this little parable. The first question he asks is, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? What does a man do if he has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost? Now, this man, where, where he's asking them to project their own value system now, he's really saying, what would you do if you were that man? Would you risk the 99 that seem to be safe to go after the one who's gotten lost in the wilderness? And that's the question he asks. Won't this man leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Wouldn't he do that? Hmm. Maybe he wouldn't if he was like you. <laughs> I mean, that's the sort of the unspoken thing that he leaves in their lap here. Wouldn't he do it? And wouldn't he do it is really about the heart of God. The, the heart of God, Jesus is saying, is the kind of heart that leaves the 99 others in the wilderness and goes to search for that one that is lost until he finds it. He is trying to tell the Pharisees why he eats with tax collectors and sinners. It is not uh, people-pleasing. He's not eating with them because he doesn't want to offend their invitation. He's eating with them because he sees them for, what, for who and what they are. They are the lost sheep. And what he's saying is the heart of God looks like this. The heart of God will leave those who seem to be safe, those who seem to be content and not in need. He will leave those contented, not in need sheep and search for the one that is in desperate need until he finds it. And what will he do when he finds it? When he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. And when he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I found my lost sheep. I just want to take you back to the last thing John said to me. John, the metal detector, John, the metaphor of Jesus, John, the, the pursuer of the lost so that the lost can be found. This is the last thing John wrote to me once more. Rick, wow. It's been a long time since I've smiled so warmly on the inside. Glad that you finally will get the ring returned. Casey is a good friend and a metal detecting companion. I am so happy this story has a happy ending. And won't the man call together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. Yes. Yes, John reminds me of Jesus. Because John, even unwittingly, is living out uh, in a metaphoric model of what Jesus does when he encounters us. John encounters me on the beach, and he can tell immediately how much the loss of my wedding ring has impacted me, has hammered me. Um, I, I couldn't believe that I lost something that had so much meaning to me. Um, 
it's 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 something I I wear on my hands, so I see it every day, and it reminds me not only of my love but my commitment. And to have had that taken away during a moment uh, during a vacation when we were enjoying just relaxing and having fun in the ocean, to have this sort of tragedy enter in to to that happy moment and not be able to find resolution for it. I think John saw all of that in my story. His reaction to my need on the beach wasn't the reaction of a person who is interested in the story, but has no intention of getting personally involved. No, John's reaction was all in. John's reaction was, because of the story you've told me, I, I will look for your ring. Give me your contact information and I will update you on my search. So I did all this. And again, how do we know what's in the heart of John? We do, I don't. But out of that promise, John searched and searched and searched. I, I, can't, I can't even estimate the number of hours John searches for things on the beach. And for him, in the back of his mind, he's always thinking about my ring finding that lost thing and returning it. For 18 months, he thinks this thought in his head. This is how you understand the heart of the person. What does he do in response to the need? And what does Jesus do in response to the need that he sees in these tax collectors and notorious sinners? Well, he leaves the self-satisfied, the, uh, the undependent, the non-needy, the teachers of religious law and Pharisees who say they don't really need anything because they got this all this whole thing dialed in. He leaves them in the wilderness and he goes off to be with the one that has need. This is the real miracle. This the miracle in this in the miracle stories of Jesus is not so much the physical reality of what, what happens. The miracle is the heart of Jesus the heart of Jesus that perfectly reflects the heart of God. That is the miracle. The heart of Jesus is a miracle. It's the kind of heart that, like breathing, will leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that's lost until he finds it. And when he finds it, joy erupts. And he invites all of his friends to share in his joy. That is the heart of Jesus. And that's the true miracle behind every one of his miracles. Now in my devotion that features this story, again, it's on April, April 2nd, the, there's at the bottom of every devotion, there are three little um, ways to engage what you've just read. One is called wonder, where I ask a question, and in this case, the question is, what's something you've lost you'd give anything to give back? And then I give a quote from Jesus. That's the second thing. And then there's a little section called do, D-O. And um, the subtitle of the Jesus-centered devotion, uh, the, uh, the Jesus-centered daily, is uh, it lists the five our five senses. Uh, see, hear, taste, touch, uh, smell. <laughs> Did I get them all right? Um, so that's the subtitle of the devotion. And the reason it has that subtitle is these little do uh, uh, experiments or experiences 
um, are all tied to one of our five senses or all five of the senses. They're sensory experiences that are based on something in the devotional thought of the day. So the do idea for April 2nd is this. On craigslist.org, the, the lost and found section, go there and pray for a few lost postings. So let's do that right now. I have up on my screen right now the lost and found section um, for the Denver area where I am. Um, and uh, I'm just going to choose one and uh, maybe one or two here. And we're just going to pray for them. So the first one that catches my eye is lost wallet 50 reward. So I'm just going to click on that. Um, this says I lost my wallet by 711 on Santa Fe drive reward for it is $50. Let's just pray for that. Jesus, whoever this man is who lost his wallet on uh, 7-Eleven on Santa Fe Drive, um, uh, would you work a miracle in his life? Whatever that is, would you show up with your heart into this desperate need? This thing maybe that he's thinking of right now that is lost forever. Would you enter into his story in a way that reminds him of your goodness? In Jesus' name, let's uh, let's do one more here. Oh, there's lots of missing dog, missing cat, um, all kinds of. Here's one. Uh, since this this fits my story, here's one that says lost silver ring. So here's what it says: Between 8 a.m. and 9 a.m. the morning of February 8th, my fingers had shrunk in the cold, and I was scraping ice off of my car and I lost my ring. It has extreme sentimental value, and I will give a reward for this. Please reach out if you picked it up. And then she lists the location of where the ring was lost. So let's pray for this need. Jesus, uh, it is a physical miracle that I have my wedding ring back. I can feel it on my hand right now. It's a, it's a physical miracle. It's an amazing story. I'll never forget this story and how it reminds me of your heart. Would you do something similar for this woman? Would you do something to intervene in her story that she could also say to her friends, I'll never forget this story. And that the way that this story um, resolves reminds her that she has a God who will leave the 99 on the hill and go after the one. Would you please enter into her story in such a way that that she's drawn to you and that there's no other explanation for her getting her ring returned than your intervention. Pray for this in the name of Jesus. Well, gang, you can do this today too. You can just um, dial up craigslist.org on your computer, go to the lost and found area and spend a couple minutes praying for the lost things. And as you do, um, Maybe there's something lost in your life that you're desperately needing to be found. Don't be afraid. Knock on his door. Ask. Jesus invites us to ask. So whatever you've lost, ask him if he could find it for you again. Um, and remember, his heart is a heart that goes after the one, leaving the 99 behind trust in his heart and believe. 
Gang, thanks for listening. Uh, This is season six, episode six. So you can go again to painridiculousattentiontojesus.com and look for links for everything that we talked about today, including a link to Casey's Ring Finder website so you can uh, hopefully at some point soon see this story and see these photos on his blog. This is, again, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from ricklawrence.com. You can subscribe on Google Play or iTunes, and we'll see you again next time.